WDIY Lehigh Valley Public Radio presents Lehigh Valley Discourse. Provocative, informative, and newsworthy, Lehigh Valley Discourse brings you the people and the issues that move and shape our region, here on WDIY. Good evening and welcome to Lehigh Valley Discourse. If it's Thursday, 6 p.m., that means WDIY presents Lehigh Valley Discourse. I'm your host, John Pierce. Our engineer this evening is James Johnson on the board. And my guest this evening is Dr. Corey Fisher Hoffman, who is a professor at Lafayette College, And she is into a very interesting project, which uh, has to do with Bethlehem steel in Latin America. Dr. Fisher Hoffman has a bachelor's degree from the Evergreen State College. Corey, where is that? That's in Olympia, Washington. Olympia, Washington. No wonder it's called Evergreen. That's right. And that was in political economy, comparative politics, and Latin American studies. And then she has a Master of Arts with honors from the University of Kansas. So you moved east with your studies. And then she continued moving east with her Ph.D. from the University of Albany, SUNY, in Latin American, Caribbean, and U.S. Latino studies. So, Dr. Corey Fisher Hoffman, you have such an interesting background in several different ways. One is your Latin American studies emphasis in your in your formal education. And another is your love of languages, because you deal with Spanish, Portuguese, Quechua, and what else? Mostly I speak Spanish and English. And yeah, I've studied Portuguese and Quechua and French as well. And I don't know anyone else who has studied Quechua, which is a native language from, from the Andes. That's correct. Right? Yeah, I studied in Bolivia. In Bolivia. All right. And you've had some emphasis with Venezuela also with your writing. So this time, what we're talking about with Latin American emphasis on what Bethlehem Steel has done in Chile at this particular point. You also have background in radio. I think we'll get back to that in a few minutes. First of all, um, with your interest in Latin American studies, I understand that you would be interested in a company like Bethlehem Steel, uh, which has dealings in Latin America. How did you get connected with Bethlehem Steel to do your study? Yeah, so I moved to Bethlehem about four and a half years ago, and I was working as a postdoctoral fellow at Lehigh University with the Mellon Digital Humanities Initiative. And the goal of that project was to document local history and to think about how media and digital technologies could be used to support people in community storytelling. And very quickly, I started to learn a lot about the Bethlehem Steel Corporation. Obviously, it has left a huge mark on this geography. So, you know, just living life in the shadows of the blast furnaces, I became very curious about this history and people's long connections connections to it. And a couple of different things sort of tipped me off to Latin America. I mean, as I started to learn about Bethlehem Steel's history, I would see different places in Latin America pop up. Mentions of Cuba, 
Venezuela, Chile. And I would think, oh, that's fascinating. So they had iron mining operations in those countries. What can I learn about it? And as I started to poke around and learn more, I realized that very little had been documented about the history of the Bethlehem Steel Corporation in Latin America, and particularly the transnational ties. So the reality that a lot of the iron ore that actually was used to produce steel, both at the Bethlehem plant and particularly at Sparrows Point in Maryland, was iron ore that came from Latin America. And that period ranged from actually the 1880s when iron mining started in Cuba, um, all the way through the 1980s um, when iron ore was still being brought in from Brazil. So there was about a century of history of bringing in what is essentially earth from halfway across the world um, to Bethlehem and to Sparrows Point to produce steel. And it felt like that story was really underanalyzed and undertold. And so that's what I've been exploring. Yes, and I can tell already that you have a big interest in storytelling. Isn't it something that fascinates us all, right? Absolutely. So you've been to Chile to see what Bethlehem Steel is doing there. Uh, what do those operations look like? So the history around Bethlehem Steel in Chile is that they purchased mining rights to a small um, iron deposit um, on the west coast in a nor what's called the Norte Chico region of Chile, so about seven hours north of Santiago. And um, this was a coastal area in which there was a relatively large deposit of iron ore that a French company had owned. And Bethlehem Steel bought the rights to it in 1913. And this was in anticipation of the Panama Canal opening. Without the Panama Canal, it would not have been economically feasible to ship iron ore from Chile all the way to the east coast of the United States. It would have had to go around the southern tip of South America. Right. Um, and so Bethlehem Steel made this huge investment, and they had a financial and economic interest in the Panama Canal opening uh, to open up shipments. And at the point when they started shipping iron ore from Chile to Sparrows Point in the 1920s, they were actually some of the first shipments that passed through the Panama Canal. And um, this was at that point in history, the longest distance that iron ore traveled to a blast furnace. And so even though some parts of Bethlehem Steel's history acknowledge this, um, this use of iron ore from Chile, there's this incredible local history about the lives of the miners, their families who lived in these company towns in these isolated regions of Chile. And in the 1950s, Bethlehem Steel expanded and opened up El Romeral Mine. Both of those mines were nationalized in 1971 after the socialist president, Salvador Allende, came to power and fulfilled his election promise to nationalize the large mines operated by multinational corporations. So while most of the story tends to focus on the copper mining sector in Chile, Bethlehem Steel was really the only large player in iron mining. And so their mines were also nationalized in Chile, and that brought an end to um, their period from 1913 to 1971. Now, El Romeral Mine is still in operation. It is still run by a sort of uh, public-private partnership that has to do with the original government company that took over those mines from the Bethlehem Steel Corporation. So I was both able to visit El Romeral and see the mine in action, which it continues to be the largest iron mine in Chile. But I also was able to speak to many former tofinos, which is how people from the town of El Tofo identify, um, and about their lives and community. Um, they continue to return to El Tofo, even though the mine has been shut down for many years, and basically it's a ghost town. Wow. Um, and they continue to t return every year and to tell stories about their lives there and feel really connected to that 
history. Right. Yes, you mentioned in passing uh, copper, which is the huge income for Chile. In fact, I was in the Peace Corps in Chile in Antofagasta in the north in the 1960s. And as they were preparing us to go there, they said that copper represented about 80% of the Chilean economy. And so I didn't hear anything about steel. It was all about copper. And of course, being in the north of the country, that the big copper mine was there, which is an open pit at Chuquicamata. Yeah, so the iron mines um, are open pit. I mean, basically, iron, if you think about the pricing, you have like precious metals like gold that are priced by ounce. And then you have metals, semi-precious metals like copper that are priced by pound. And then you have um, metals like iron, which are priced by tons. And so Mm. the logistics of it, um, it's it's basically not financially feasible to do underground mining of iron ore. So yes, it was open pits and what some people say is a a form of quarrying really. Um, And so large industrial machinery was used and very much of the sort of dynamics of shipping iron ore from Chile in South America all the way over to the east coast of the United States was an enormous feat in logistics. Um, And so both the building of an electric train, actually the very first electric train in all of South America was built at El Tofu Iron Mine um, to get the iron ore from the mountain down to the coast where the port was. Um, and then Bethlehem Steel built many of the boats in which the iron ore was then brought from Chile through the Panama Canal and then coming in either at Sparrows Point in Maryland or unloading in Philadelphia, then being loaded on trains and brought to Bethlehem. Yeah, what a huge effort that was. And One thing that occurs to me also, Bethlehem Steel, having its huge operation in Bethlehem here, could have duplicated what it does here in order to refine the iron and and build a, a huge structure in Latin America. Was that not feasible financially? Well, it's not only that it... I mean, I think it was feasible financially if we look at the kinds of massive investments that the Bethlehem Steel Corporation made into their own mining operations. Certainly, they had capital to be able to make investments. This is a part of my research that is coming up over and over again, not only in Chile, but also in Venezuela, as well as in Brazil, which is the tension between many of these countries asking that very same question, which is like, why are we exporting all of our iron ore to the United States, have them produce steel, and then to have to purchase that steel at a much higher price. What would it mean if we could actually produce steel in our own countries? And so this question of national development and industrialization is one that really intersects very much with this history of Bethlehem Steel. So the original contract that Bethlehem Steel signed in 1913 agreed to the fact that they would be obligated to sell iron ore at cost to the Chilean government if they got a steel industry up and running. And that didn't happen for basically the first 40 years Bethlehem Steel operated there. And there's, um, you know, there's not a lot of record to show that Bethlehem Steel was working in support of them developing a steel industry. However, in 1950, they did. And Huachipato was the launch of the first steel industrial. It was really the second. They had an experimental project that failed in the 1910s. But in 1950 is really when the Chilean steel industry got up and running. And that also marked a massive restructuring of Bethlehem's operations in Chile. 
both in the fact that now a third of the iron ore being mined at El Romeral mine was now being sent to the Chilean blast furnaces for production of domestic steel. And Bethlehem was always kind of clear. They were willing to sort of cooperate in the production of a domestic steel industry, but they were very clear that they did not want international competitors. So they didn't want steel industries that worked for export. But if they were going to produce for a domestic market, Bethlehem Steel sort of went along with it. And in this time period, they also started reorienting and actually selling a good amount of their iron ore shipments to Japan and to the Japanese steel industry. And so the Chilean mines were no longer an essential source. And this is starting roughly in the 19, late 1950s. They were no longer an essential source for iron ore and raw material inputs into the steel production process in the United States. They were really more of a financial investment. And Bethlehem Steel was selling most of that iron ore to Japan. Selling the iron ore to Japan. Interesting. Well, in relation to Chile, uh, you were able to, to travel to the former iron mine sites, which you've mentioned, and, and towns. And you said that the iron, uh, is it El Tofo, that is no longer operating because they took out all the iron that was, that was there? Well, it's an interesting question because the the um, one of the things that I found in visiting is sort of this contradictory concept of depletion. And so one of the things I've been exploring is, yeah, you know, a part of the mine shut down there because of this idea that the iron mine was gone. But it was it was very hard for many of the people who had built their families for multiple generations in this town to be told, you know, you're going to lose your house. We're going to shut down your town, the church that you got married in, the place you got baptized, the library that you went to the school, all of this is going to disappear. I mean, that's very hard for anybody to confront and face. Mm. And it's, it is perplexing because, you know, just walking around on the ground there, there's literally chunks of iron everywhere. And so oh. the iron itself as a material is not gone. But understanding that for the company, it's not a question about whether there's actually iron in the ground. It's a question about how much it's going to cost to extract it and to ship it. And those are calculations that happened in a boardroom here in Bethlehem that had huge implications for Chileans. And so understanding depletion as an economic calculation and that um, but it was not an economic calculation. It had real impacts on many of the lives of Chileans who lost their beloved town and who actually wow. confronted displacement as a result. My guest this evening on Lehigh Valley Discourse is Dr. Corey Fisher Hoffman, who is a professor at Lafayette College and is talking to us about Bethlehem Steel's involvement in Chile and in other countries of Latin America. And we're going to learn more about this fascinating topic when we return. I'm John Pierce, your host. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. Celtic Fair, a celebration of Celtic music and culture, from its roots in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Brittany, and Galicia, to its branches in Australia, Cape Breton, Canada, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and the Lehigh Valley. Music, interviews, and a weekly culture calendar, every Thursday from 7 to 9, here on WDIY. Welcome back to Lehigh Valley Discourse. I'm John Pierce, your host. My guest this evening, Dr. Corey Fisher Hoffman, is uh, talking to us about Bethlehem Steel's involvement in Latin America. 
And Corey, I know that from my own experience and, and hearing tales that it's it's a problematic situation when you have private companies from other countries coming into your country to exploit your your wealth. And so we had the, the problem of the copper, big copper company, Anaconda, from the U.S. going down to Chile. You're mentioning the iron now with Bethlehem Steel. Are there other countries in Latin America that have deposits of iron that are considerable? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Again, this is the sort of fascinating thing where geology meets economics. The question is not only are there deposits, um, how pure are those deposits? So how much impurities do they have? There are some problematic impurities that are harder to burn out. Um, And so uh, there's a lot of sort of chemical assessment of uh, what the qualities of different iron ore deposits are. And so particularly in El Tofo, this was a very high-grade iron ore, far higher than what was coming from Pennsylvania or from the Midwest. And that meant that essentially you needed a little bit less of it to produce the quality of steel, that it was more pure. And so it took less energy to burn. And so that made iron from Chile very valuable. And there are other deposits. So um, in the 1930s, there was a huge iron ore deposit found in Venezuela. Um, There had been an initial beginning work to develop it. But then with World War II, that came to a halt. And Bethlehem Steel didn't really fully develop for export until 1950. And that is in El Pau in Venezuela um, along the Orinoco River. And actually, U.S. Steel found an even huger deposit at Cerro Bolivar, just a little ways down the river, and they began developing that a few years later. So Venezuela became a very important source of iron ore in the kind of post-World War II era. And then following that, the Iron Quadrigal, what it's called in Brazil, also became an extremely important source, and that was a little bit later. And that was a cooperation of Bethlehem Steel, Hanna Mining Company, U.S. Steel. And I think you raise a really important point, which is that One, there's a very long history of extraction and exploitation in Latin America that really does date back to colonization. So Eduardo Galeano, who wrote the famous book, The Open Veins of Latin America, talks about and paints this image of of Cerro Rico, as it was called in Potosí, this large mountain where the vast majority of the silver reserves of the world came from, that you could physically build a bridge from Potosí to Madrid with all of the silver that was taken from the mountain. Oh, my God, across the Atlantic. And that right next to that bridge would actually be um, um, a bridge made of the dead bodies, of the lives lost of people who worked in that mining process. And so, yes, there's this long history of exploitation, extraction in Latin America, which made Bethlehem Steel's involvements complicated. Many of the ways in which they initially got involved in Latin America were also under the guise of development. And one of the things that that my research is exploring is it's asking this question. Okay, so what did, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of a multinational corporate investment in industrial mining do for the regional development of those regions? Can we say we now have a lot of data? Can we say that their investment actually created a sustainable development Or was this really to the benefit of the corporations? And so that's one of the things that I'm exploring in my work. Exactly. And you have something that you're working on that you're calling the Quiet Flow Transnational Analysis of Bethlehem Steel in Brazil. So you're working 
with Chile, Venezuela, and Brazil, basically. And Cuba as well. And Cuba as well. So one of the arguments, and I'm calling it the quiet flow at this point, because, um, you know, Bethlehem Steel is a corporation. I think one of the things that, that I'm learning in this research is that, you know, how did this, what was at, at the beginning in the 1880s when they first went to Cuba, it was actually before the Bethlehem Steel Corporation was incorporated, so the Bethlehem um, Iron Mines Company. How did they begin becoming this transnational corporation? They were essentially a small Pennsylvania steel company company. And so what's that transformation into a transnational corporation? And one of the things I learned about Cuba was that that was really the kind of the university of becoming a multinational corporation and that the Bethlehem Steel Corporation really learned a lot from the sugar sector um, and sugar multinational corporations that had huge plantations and haciendas. And they sort of followed their model. And so that's kind of where they learned. And then they took that model with them to Chile, to Venezuela, and to Brazil. However, by the time that they set up operations in Brazil, again, post-World War II, they had already started to see a political shift in Latin America, where this demand of Latin Americans to not um, export all of their raw materials and instead to industrialize, to build localized steel industries, um, to not be in a cycle of what dependency theorists see as exploitation or selling raw materials and then having to buy very expensive industrialized produced goods. This also led to a lot of organizing of workers, demanding better wages. Um, and one of the me- big demands was nationalization of the iron mines and of mining sector. And so this led to nationalization first in Cuba in 1961 following the Cuban Revolution, then in Chile in 1971 following the election of Salvador Allende, and then in 1975 in Venezuela leading up to the nationalization of oil. And so Bethlehem Steel had experienced this in these three countries, and they really built from that experience. And the ways in which they invested in Brazil were markedly different, which is that they formed a joint venture with a Brazilian capitalist who recruited them into the project. And the rumor is that Bethlehem Steel wasn't interested at first, but that actually the U.S. government said, hey, we need manganese. This is a really strategic mineral for us. And there's actually no manganese in the United States. Um, And so the Bethlehem Steel Corporation became 49% investors and partners with this Brazilian capitalist to form ICOMI. And different from, from Cuba, different from Chile, they left their name off of everything. They did not want people to know that they were this foreign multinational, or what at that point people were thinking of as Yankee imperialist, right? <laughs> um, firm. And so they kept that very quiet. And that's why I called it the quiet flow, because there was a real intention in Brazil to make sure that Bethlehem Steel was in charge of operations, was really benefiting from the flow of minerals, could manage on a technical side every aspect of the operation, but that their name stayed off of everything. Well, and not to uh, mention, which I'm doing right now, that uh, (laughs) the word Bethlehem is difficult for Latinos to pronounce. Well, they, that didn't even come up because literally their name, I mean, it, it's been hidden. Um, and so this became Ecomi. And interestingly, the other aspect in Brazil that's kind of unique 
but it connects to Mexico as well, is that in addition to actually having manganese and then later iron ore that was coming and fueling their production process, they also had multiple financial investments that had nothing to do with steel production. Um, and similarly in Mexico, they provided engineering expertise for various mining projects, um, and they had financial interest in mining projects in Mexico, even though none of those raw materials were actually arriving to their plants in the United States. Right. Now, you've been conducting interviews with former Bethlehem Steel employees and U.S.-born engineers who lived and worked in Latin America. So how have these interviews helped you to understand better the experiences of employees stationed in Latin America? I bet it's been an eye-opener. It has been so fascinating. And I'm so incredibly grateful to the people who have sat down with me and shared their stories. It's been really wonderful to hear them. Some of the stories that stand out for me are like people from the United States who had never left the country, never been on an airplane in their entire lives. And they basically get on an airplane and go to a place that they'd never before even barely heard of and move to these remote mining towns and build this whole social world in the mining towns. And these company towns were highly marked by hierarchy and stratification. And so oftentimes the local and domestic workforce would live in company housing. There would be slightly um, sort of fancier houses for the engineers. And then the executives would live in these kind of elite compounds. And they tended to have these um, swimming pools and social clubs and tennis courts. Um, and so they sort of built this world uh, in these mining towns, but that were also very small and very isolated. And so some of the fascinating experiences um, that people have and that they've shared with me that, that's stood out, some of the gender dynamics, too, of the role that women have played and really their role was to kind of build a U.S. culture within those mining camps. And so they were in charge of a lot of the social engagements of organizing things around Christmas, but also some of the culture clashes, too. So many of the women who, had, in this case, had come from the Midwest or from Pennsylvania, they were working class, they grew up on farms. Here they are in this mining town, and all of a sudden, they're sort of a part of the semi-elite. And they're asked to have gardeners and to have domestic workers in their house, and they're sort of told to that they need to provide local employment, and so that they have to hire this whole staff. And how uncomfortable many women from the United States, from their own working class position, were to all of a sudden have all of these domestic workers laboring in their house. And how different that was from a lot of the Latina women who had grown up um, more with the experience, that kind of cultural difference. Such an interesting point. I wouldn't have thought about that, how, how difficult it was to adapt. Now, the way you're painting the picture for us, Corey, sounds as if the folks from the United States who were moving to mining towns in Chile, created a sort of a segregated neighborhood for themselves. There was no emphasis to try to integrate with Chilenos who lived nearby. Well, it sort of is a more complicated than that. In many ways, that's true. But, you know, this structure was set up by the company, right? So this is very much a sort of social engineering, labor engineering design to do these kind of company towns in this rank. And, you know, many people, including Chilenos, refer to uh, their time in El Tofo as one big happy family. However, when you ask people, OK, so but are there power differentials in a family? The answer is yes, right? So there was sort of this sense of solidarity and of being in it together in sometimes a harsh climate in a very isolated area. And yet, nonetheless, the logic of the town was one of extreme hierarchy. 
Um, and so North Americans and also I will say internationals because it wasn't only people from the United States and especially post-World War II, many more Europeans came and joined the operations, um, had a higher level of privileges. And that dynamic, um, a lot of what Tofino identity was and living in this town was learning how to navigate in those social hierarchies. Yes, indeed. Uh, we have just a minute left, Corey. Let's give a shout out to Javier Rojas from La Serena in Chile. Is that near El Tofo? Absolutely, yeah. So La Serena is sort of the big city, and that's where Bethlehem Steel's office was located. Um, I actually got to visit that. And I'm so glad you mentioned Javier because my research has been possible because of collaboration with people on the ground, and particularly um, Javier Rojas has been an incredible collaborator in helping me meet his father, for example, who his father's uh, father and his mother's father both worked for the Bethlehem Steel Corporation in the mines. And so he was born in the town of El Tofo, and it's been incredible to connect with him. We were able to put on an event together at the National Museum of Industrial History where we talked about Bethlehem Steel's history in Latin America. And one of the big arguments that I made is that while the Bethlehem Steel Corporation is hotly debated, especially locally, um, in which they are a victim of globalization, one of the arguments that I'm making in my research is that they are as much an instigator of globalization as they are a victim of it. They built these transnational networks to move raw materials um, from Latin America to the United States, and this really resulted in their growth, even if it resulted in their ultimate demise as well. Wow. Just a fascinating topic. Unfortunately, our time is up for Lehigh Valley Discourse. Dr. Corey Fisher-Hoffman, thanks so much for coming by and sharing so much of your expertise in this area, which I'm assuming most of our listeners had never considered. And that was Bethlehem Steel. We tend to be myopic and think, okay, Bethlehem Steel is for us and for the U.S., but it's for the world also. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Gracias. De nada. Well, folks, we thank you for tuning in. I'm John Pierce, your host. Stay tuned now as we have more Lehigh Valley Discourse coming your way. Did you know your phone is a radio? Tune in to WDIY anywhere on the go with WDIY's phone app. Download for free from the Apple or Google Store and turn your phone into your trusted public radio. The easy-to-use app lets you listen to WDIY live on your phone and play all your favorite programs on demand. Download and share the WDIY app with your friends and family and introduce them to many choices, real voices. And welcome back to Lehigh Valley Discourse here on WDIY. I'm John Pierce, your host. This half hour, my guest is Candace Perry, who is curator of the Schwenkfelder Library and Heritage Center in Pennsburg. Schwenkfelder. Can you say it five times quickly in a row, Candace? <laughs> I can, I can. <laughs> she has done it many times. Yes. <laughs> well, a little history about what this group is, because, Candace, to tell you the truth, I had not heard of the Schwenkfelders until uh, you came along to be interviewed. They, oh. They, uh, they live in Pennsylvania Dutch country, 
and are the descendants of a small Protestant sect that began in Germany around the time of the Reformation. So we're talking 16th century. They were followers of Kaspar Schenkfeld von Ossig. And yeah. his dates are 1489 to 1561. A Silesian Reformation theologian who founded the movement called Reformation by the Middle Way. Schwenkfeld's ideas led to a split with Martin Luther in 1527, and the group faced religious persecution. Lower Silesia, now part of Poland, became their traditional home. During seven, the 1730s, most remaining followers fled and settled in southeastern Pennsylvania, an area already home to German immigrants and others seeking religious freedom. By the late 18th century, leaders in the community laid the groundwork for what would become today's Schwenkfelder General Conference, which is now comprised of three churches in Montgomery County and a mission in Philadelphia. Although the majority of Schwenkfelders settled in the upper Perkiomen Valley, many chose to relocate to Lehigh County, and there remains a substantial Schwenkfelder descendant population today throughout the region. And we're going to find out many details about this group from my guest, Candace Perry, who is curator of the Schwenkfelder Library and Heritage Center. Candace, first of all, explain to us a little bit what a curator does. Okay. Well, curators can do different things. It depends on actually the size of the museum and um, what kind of curator you are. Um, art museum curators are definitely somewhat different than history museum curators. Um, in my career, I've always worked for history museums, so we're, we're a little bit of a separate animal than, say, the curator of the Allentown Art Museum. Uh, but curators generally are, um, are, are doing research, developing exhibits, writing um, either um, for scholarly or popular audiences and that kind of uh, work. But we could also, in smaller museums, certainly the one I work for, we do what's known as collections management, which is overseeing the entire collection and taking care of it and um, keeping track of it, uh, which in a larger museum, say um, probably even the Allentown Art Museum or the Philadelphia Art Museum, they have other individuals who do those jobs. But in smaller museums, we do it all. Okay. And so how did you prepare yourself to be a curator? Let's go back to your educational roots. Well, I was a history major after some uh, dithering about in music at Penn State, and then um, had a few years off and went back to uh, Duquesne University in Pittsburgh as a, a major in American history, and they also had a museum studies program, a small one at Duquesne. And so I have a master's in, in American history and um, that museum studies program. And what that program did in particular was train individuals to work in smaller museums. It wasn't really sending people into large museums, but to small museums where you did a multitude of tasks. 
um, perhaps you were the only employee where you might be the um, administrator and do curatorial work. So it, it sort of gave you a basic foundation in all the kind of work that one would do in a museum or in an archive, for that matter. And then following that, I worked um, basically in several museums in the South, uh, because in the late 80s, it, was, it was, seemed very hard to get an entry-level job in Pennsylvania. So I worked in several museums in the South, and my last job before coming to the Schwenkfelder was as curator of the Kentucky Derby Museum. So I always say I went from vice to nice. <laughs> um, with that, <laughs> with that change in in my job, but I did love it there. But here, um, being Pennsylvania German myself, um, I always wanted to work for a cultural institution that emphasized Pennsylvania Germans, and there actually aren't many of those. Most of the uh, local museums and historical societies have Pennsylvania Germans as part of their um, interpretive background, but um, not uh, really focused on it like we do here at the Schwenkfelder. Uh, we're all German all the time, as I say. Uh-huh. So does this mean that you are fluent in Deutsch? Oh, no, not at all. I had it all through school, but it never sank in very well. <laughs> I can I can translate, um, as um, Dwight Schrute said in... Um, in on the office w once, um, yeah. pre-industrial religious German, and that's about <laughs> all I can do. <laughs> this is Candace Perry talking with us this evening about the Schwenkfelder Library and Heritage Center. I'm really interested that, that there exists a Kentucky Derby Museum. Oh, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. It's very large. And it's right on the grounds of Churchill Downs. So if you ever visit Louisville, that's the place to go. Excellent. And that was a place where you most recently were before you came to Schwenkfelder. Uh, yeah, but I've actually been here at the Schwenkfelder for 22 years. So it was quite oh, some time ago. Some time ago, <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the museum itself. Uh, and it's called Library and Heritage Center. Are, do you consider yourself a museum as well as library? Yes. Actually, we're really a tra traditionally a historical society, but that term's sort of fallen out of favor these days, and this term of heritage center has sort of taken over. Um, but um, uh, we, we are a library, not a lending library. We're a historical library and then also a museum. And the, the library end of our work is actually quite large and very significant. We have materials in the library that date to the Reformation period um, that were gathered in Europe and brought over here, and some that actually the Schwenkfelder immigrants brought with them. So these things are a very significant core part of our collection. Um, and we also have uh, the writings of Kaspar Schwenkfeld, so they're obviously Reformation period. Um, and then the, the museum side tends to reflect the lives of the Schwenkfelder uh, immigrants and their descendants here in Pennsylvania from the, the 18th century to almost really the present day. Okay. And the, uh, going back to the Reformation period, are these 
texts that you deal with all in German? Oh, yes, yes. And not only are they in German, but they're in German script, which is um, uh, a type of cursive German writing that um, is no longer used today. So you have to be able to use, to read that um, script, to read these um, documents. Yes, absolutely. No mean feat. It it isn't, and it's something that I can only read proper nouns, but thankfully we have a scholar on board here who can read the script, so we're in good shape that way. Wonderful. Are there any texts in Latin? Oh, yes. Yes, that too. Yes, Mm -hmm. definitely. Because in those days, we're talking 16th century, uh, many times people considered the serious texts to be in Latin, and not in the vernacular. Exactly, and certainly the books are generally in Latin uh, rather than German, and it wasn't until the Reformation really that vernacular German became more of commonly used to right. make it reach to more individuals. Right. You prefer the term Pennsylvania Germans to Pennsylvania Dutch. I switch back and forth. Um, I've said Pennsylvania German for so long um, that I'm, it's kind of ingrained in, in me to say that. But uh, Pennsylvania Dutch is, is actually probably more acceptable because it covers more of the wide variety of people who fall under the Pennsylvania Dutch umbrella. Uh, for instance, the French Huguenots who settled in Berks County, they tend to fall under the umbrella, but they're certainly not German. They were of French background. So um, that it also sort of includes them. So I, I should teach myself to say Pennsylvania Dutch more, but it always seems to come out Pennsylvania German. Well, I'm, I'm from the Midwest originally, and uh, all my life have heard about Pennsylvania Dutch. I never heard the term Pennsylvania German until I came to the Lehigh Valley. So I always thought that it had to do with the Netherlands, of course, being Dutch. Oh, yes, yes. Rather than Germany. So, But I'm interested also that you also uh, have uh, Huguenots from France being considered Pennsylvania Dutch as well. Yeah, yeah, They just because they lived shoulder to shoulder, uh, with the with the Pennsylvania Germans, the German speakers that arrived here, and some of the Huguenots, I think, also. I'm not real up on my Huguenot history. They um, they uh, went to Germany to escape persecution, so they may have actually been French with German speakers. And so when they and also when they moved here, then they intermarried with the local German population. Um, and specifically, you see a lot of this in Oli. If you visit the beautiful Oli Valley, you see um, a lot of the Huguenot names in that area. Interesting. My guest this evening on Lehigh Valley Discourse is Candace Perry. She is curator of the Schwenkfelder Library and Heritage Center. And it's time for us to take a break, Candace. We invite our listeners to stay tuned because we have much more to talk about the Schwenkfelders. Stay tuned to Lehigh Valley Discourse. 
Galactic Travels brings you hour-long soundscapes of electronic, ambient, and space music. That's Thursday night at 11, right here on WDIY Allentown, Lehigh Valley Public Radio, 88.1 FM and WDIY.org. Many choices, real voices. Welcome back to Lehigh Valley Discourse. I'm John Pierce, your host. Our engineer this evening, James Johnson, doing the board work for us. And my guest, Candace Perry, who is curator of the Schwenkfelder Library and Heritage Center. We were talking off the air about how the Schwenkfelders and Pennsylvania Dutch in general What's, what's the influence that they would have had or connection that they would have had to the Amish in Pennsylvania and the Mennonites? Yes. First of all, it's important to note that the Amish are an entirely different group from Lancaster County. So there was really virtually no interaction and perhaps even knowledge on the part of the Schwenkfelders of Amish life because it was so far removed. Um, however, the Mennonites are a different story. There was a large community of Mennonites, much larger than the Schwenkfelders, that lived in central Montgomery Ga- County and in um, Berks County, uh, far eastern Berks County, um, like in Washington Township, Hereford Township in Berks County. And um, those uh, individuals often intermarried with the Schwenkfelders because the Schwenkfelders ran out of eligible young people to marry, uh, and the marriages were getting just a little bit too close for comfort. So um, by the early 19th century, there were many Mennonites um, intermarrying with Schwenkfelder young people. Uh, often, though, those families became Mennonite. They did not stay Schwenkfelder, because the Mennonites, I believe, um, was a much stronger influence. The Schwenkfelders were a tad more laid back. So, yes, you, you see a very strong Mennonite influence, especially in central Montgomery County. Right. I would say that the, uh, the term Mennonite and Amish means something to most people, whereas Schwenkfelder does not. Exactly. And they are much larger groups. The Schwenkfelders were never a large group. Even in, in Europe, they weren't large, and they're not large now. What makes them significant um, was the maintaining of the heritage that they did from very early on. And that's what provided the basis for our institution, even though the group was small, uh, they were very interested in the preservation of their heritage. And as a result, um, we have the wonderful collection that we have here today. The uh, Schwenkfelder Library and Heritage Center was founded in 1884 to collect the writings of Kaspar Schwenkfeld von Ossig and to preserve the distinctive Schwenkfelder heritage. So a question for you, Candace, is the Library Heritage Center the only one in existence? Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Yes, because by, well, let's let's start with Europe. In Europe, the last Schwenkfelder, practicing Schwenkfelder, died in 1826. 
So even though there were descendants of those families still living in Europe, they weren't practicing Schwenkfelders. So the only practicing Schwenkfelders that still were were here were in Pennsylvania um, and remained in Pennsylvania, even though many families left and went, for instance, and settled in the Midwest in the 19th century, those people weren't practicing Schwenkfelders. They left their faith behind here in Pennsylvania. Um, yeah. <laughs> A relatively small group. It and was, yes. The, uh, the Library and Heritage Center was first housed in a private home and then moved to the campus of Perky Yeoman School in Pennsburg. In 1951, the library was constructed at the site where it remains today, which is 105 Seminary Street in Pennsburg. So how about the, the building? If we go and see the building, what are, what are we looking at? Well, the original Schwenkfelder Library that was built in 1950-1951 is an, a very modern building for that time period. So it, it was interesting. When I first saw the building, I, I thought it looked like either a mausoleum or a utility, a public <laughs> utility. Yeah, which wasn't good, but it was such an odd building. It seemed very out of place in this small town of Pennsburg. Um, uh, but then, over the years, 50 years later, in 2001, we opened an addition to that original library building. Um, and then, in last year, we built another addition, filling up all of our footprint now. We, we don't have any more real estate to build on. Uh, and these, these two additions over the past 20 years were, were both museum galleries and some storage. Uh, for our library and archive. And then we also brought onto our property a nearly 200-year-old barn from central Montgomery County, Tallamedicine Town Township to be exact, that was owned by a Schwenkfelder family. So we have that too. And we're preserving this barn. Actually, I call it the largest artifact in our collection because we're, it's not there to do demonstrations. It's there to show how these barns looked, how these barns were constructed. Because here in Montgomery County, we're losing barns at a very rapid pace. Montgomery County has gone from being a rural um, farming uh, county to, of course, a highly developed, um, sophisticated area with lots of different kinds of companies and malls and what have you. So we're really, we feel very responsible to preserve that passing history that's, of the that, agriculture. That's the first time that I've heard a barn described as an artifact. Oh, yeah, it's our <laughs> largest, yeah, because we really try, are trying to preserve it as that, yes. And today, the Shankfelder Library and Heritage Center houses a rare collection of more than 50,000 books, records, objects, and artifacts, and they're all freely open to scholars, researchers, and the visiting public. So, Candace, does that mean that we would go to 105 Seminary Street in Pennsburg, and what are the hours that you're open? Well, the, the hours in, as of now would be 9 to 4, Tuesday through Friday, uh, 5 to 8 on Thursday nights also, 
and then um, uh, 10 to 3 on Saturdays and 1 to 4 on Sundays. So they're a little bit different kinds of hours. But and I should add, we are also free. We are free to everyone. We gladly accept donations, and we have a, a gift shop. But other than that, we are very we are free and hope people will visit and see all we have. We, we actually have a very large facility, so there's a lot to see. I, do, uh, uh, I understand that many museums, and I consider yours to be a part museum, uh, have many more objects in storage than they can possibly display to the public. Is that the case with you also? <laughs> That, that, it's partially true. When we built the most recent building, one of my goals was to have what's known as visible storage, which is a kind of exhibit where you bring as much out of storage as you can to show, to make it accessible and show the public. Um, so it's not all squirreled away. Uh, so we have that exhibit that focuses on uh, rural life and every, all the kinds of different activities that took place on the farm. And a lot of the artifacts in that exhibit um, were in storage, some of them for a hundred years, literally, wow. that because we are an older institution. And um, now I would say 90% of what is in that particular exhibit, the Rural Life exhibit, was never on exhibit before or only on temporary exhibit. So uh, that's a very significant part of our current interpretive program. And we also were given a, a Conestoga wagon by Valley Forge, so that's also in that um, exhibit. This would be an excellent place for school children to, to take uh, trips, right? It would be if that was a possibility in this day and age. Unfortunately, the school tours are limited. This is the one negative thing I think I have to say today. Yeah. It's very limited and has been for, oh, 15, 20 years. Um, the larger museums still get visitation. For instance, the wonderful Mercer Museum in Doylestown, um, they still get a lot of school visitation. But the smaller organizations like ours, we can really do personalized tours and encourage um, uh, schools to come, but um, it's just hard for them with their scheduling. Now, we do have a very good and enthusiastic homeschool audience, which we also love to encourage. Right. Well, the Schwenkfelder Library and Heritage Center in Pittsburgh is internationally recognized for its collections and research and engages visitors in interactive exploration of the themes of religious freedom, tolerance, migration, and heritage in their own lives and the lives of their families. I think that's a really interesting point, that it comes back to the visitor and what yes. his family has been through and what his experience is, too. You hook up history with the present day. We, we try to, yes, and we hope that telling the story of the Schwenkfelders, which was one of, of, of persecution and oppression and coming to find um, uh, a new life here in Pennsylvania, which offered religious tolerance, uh, to all these oppressed Germans who were coming. And it wasn't, of course, just the Schwenkfelders. Uh, we hope that this is a story that others can relate to who found that in their own lives, whether it be in um, the 18th century, the 19th century, 
the 20th century or even the 21st century. And also these themes of tolerance and charity that were very important to the Schwenkfellers and continue to be so today. Is there any church left with the Schwenkfelder interpretation of Christianity? Well, we have three Schwenkfelder churches, modern-day churches. However, um, the true traditional Schwenkfeldianism no longer exists. And I like to think it's because a lot of the ideas of Schwenkfeld have been incorporated into modern-day Protestantism, so they're not unique anymore. In, in, the, in the 16th century, they were unique and radical, and today they're not really that way. They're things that are, are very um, uh, common to most uh, contemporary Protestant denominations. Um, so uh, so that, that element isn't there anymore. The churches tend to be mainstream Protestant churches. They're all wonderful churches, and they all have sort of their different kinds of um, approaches to, to Schwenkfelder faith, but they're all very wonderful. Uh, so it, it's not what it once was. So what the, what the Heritage Center's job really is, is to preserve those traditions and show what it formerly was, um, but um, really no longer is in modern-day Protestantism, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Let's talk a little bit about our inviting listeners to go and see for themselves this library and heritage center in Pittsburgh. Are, are there tickets, and does it cost anything? Oh, nope. It's all free, free admission. Um, um, we were taking, um, at the time of this uh, recording, taking um, uh, appointments for research because of the pandemic. Um, so that was going on, but really it's, it's open to all. Um, we would love more visitors. Uh, we also, if there are listeners in the Lehigh Valley, uh, who are specifically from the southern, from southern Lehigh County, we have many genealogical records, uh, from southern Lehigh County because it was a place where the Schwenkfelders settled and also other Pennsylvania German settlement, um, so we have lots of uh, genealogical records uh, that are to explore if you have family from that area. Very interesting. And a last question. We have a website where people could find you all. Yes, we do. www.schwenkfelder.org is our website. Very good. Candace Perry, who is curator of the Schwenkfelder Library and Heritage Center in Pennsburg has been my guest this evening on Lehigh Valley Discourse. Thanks so much, Candace. Thank you for having me, John. It's a fascinating world out there, and we like to take our listeners to all parts of it. So, dear listeners, thank you for tuning in. Thanks to James Johnson for his great work on the board for us. I'm your host, John Pierce. And until we meet again, remember to be gentle with your neighbor.